we're back with another episode of Pathways Perspectives, the podcast. I'm Bandu, Business Development Consultant at Development Pathways. And I'm Clara, Social Policy Officer at Development Pathways. At Pathways Perspectives, we're interested in learning about the nuances of social protection. Each episode is an expert-on-expert conversation, a discussion between practitioners on a variety of topics, such as narratives on poverty and universal child benefits. Our latest publication, in partnership with ACT Church of Sweden, focuses on social contract and the role of universal social security in building trust in government, which is the basic building block of any successful nation-state. The paper discusses that the key to this trust is the provision of universal public services since they can be enjoyed by everyone on an equal and an impartial basis. For Western Europe, the catalyst event for the need to strengthen the social contract occurred after World War II, which led to the development of universal public services. Today, could COVID-19 be the catalyst for a paradigm shift in social and economic policy in countries in the global South? Our two experts in this podcast are Andrew Fisher, Associate Professor of Social Policy and Development Studies at the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, and Stephen Kidd, Principal Social Policy Specialist at Development Pathways. They explore post-war Europe, how poverty-targeting programs undermine social contracts, and how COVID-19 is an opportunity to reevaluate the approach to development in the global south. So sit back, grab your coffee, and enjoy this episode. So hello, Um, I'm Andrew Fisher. I'm an associate professor of social policy and development studies at the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, uh, and also scientific director of CERIS, which is the Dutch research uh, school for international development. Uh, And I work on social policy, among other topics in my research and my teaching. So happy to be here and uh, to join Stephen and this presentation of this very interesting paper. Stephen? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So I'm, I'm Stephen Kidd. I'm a senior um, social policy specialist at Development Pathways. And I think we put together this blog as a means of um, you know, discussing a new paper that's just been released, um, which is talking about the importance of, um, yeah, critical importance of building trust in governments and the role of social security, or as others call it, social protection in helping build that trust and build the social contract. And that, uh, and that this really is one of the, um, you know, should be one of the key priorities in, in, in international development in, in any country is, is helping countries build that trust. Because I think what we find and would argue in the paper is, is that one of the biggest challenges that's facing many countries in the global south at the moment is very, very low government revenues. And as I argue in the paper, this is to a large extent because of the type of social policy that's delivered and to a degree the, the type of um, social security programs that are very targeted at the poor undermining that. And therefore, um, it's really important to, to try and um, design social policies in a way that will build trust and that we can look at history. To, to do that. So do you, do you see in that sense, uh, I mean, there was a period, especially if we look at, say, Africa, um, where um, in the 80s and 90s, uh, government revenues were really crippled by structural adjustment policies. But there's been um, scholars, people generally noting that there's been gradually increasing recovering revenues 
across the board in the last 10 to 20 years. And so are you seeking, seeing this as a chance, as an opportunity to how to leverage that improving revenues, basically, so to, to build upon it uh, and to take advantage of it rather than just sort of wasting the, the opportunity? Yeah, well, I think actually, if you look across many countries still, even if they have had um, some increase in revenue, say in Africa, they're still very, very low. The, the type of revenue levels that we've got, and as I show in the paper, in most countries are below 20% of, of GDP. So, so they're incredibly low. And, and, and in, for example, in South Asia, apart from one country, Nepal, there's been no increase in revenues for, for the last um, 20 years. And, and we're, we're looking there at, uh, you know, a fifth or more of the world's population living in, in, in that area. And I think the, one of the key arguments I, I try to make in the paper is that if we look at this these very low revenues, below 20% of GDP, that's exactly the type of level of revenues that we had in Europe pre-war, pre the Second World War and, and post that. And we know what happened, you know, pre-Second World War, we ended up with the Second World War. And why did we have the Second World War? It was because of, you know, there was lots of reasons, but a lot of it was because of uh, high levels of poverty, inequality, driven in part by, you know, the aftermath of the First World War, but also the Great Depression, which led to the rise of fascism, led to conflict. And we had this, um, you know, a conflict that left much of Europe as fragile states at the, at the end, dev- devastated and with a need to... to to recover. And the argument I make is that it was those low government revenues to a, to a large degree, the inability of governments to provide good quality public services that helped, you know, drive the rise of um, um, authoritarian leaders, etc., which led to yet another war in Europe, one of the most um, conflict-ridden, if not the most conflict-ridden continent in the in the world. But that, at the Second World War, there was a paradigm shift that, that happened. So many countries sat down in, this, in a sense said we've got to change our social policies and then they started to deliver on much more universal social um, um, public policies including universal social security at, at that point there'd been a bit of move before that in some countries and at that I think it's the delivery of universal social services and public services that helps uh, is, is critical in driving trust in government for a range of, uh, of reasons and I think that's the problem that we find in much of the global south is that we just don't have this trust yet because we don't have the universal public services and place. You know, one of the things that I find very interesting in this and the, just want to push you on a bit, because obviously I agree with, you know, much of the underlying um, intention of the of the paper, but it's the question of really how to bring this about. Because, uh, I mean, if we take Europe as a case in point, it really what allowed governments to substantially raise taxes on the population uh, was the war, right? It was the, the emergency of the war. It was the threat of annihilation in that sense, um, uh, which is in particular in terms of the government forcing the ruling classes, the elites, the wealthy to uh, give up some of their power and to uh, increase their sort of tax contributions. Whereas we don't see that type of, obviously, we, we don't wish to reproduce those circumstances, uh, but we don't see those types of circumstances as well. And also the fact that it was also backed up by very powerful uh, working class movements, the beverage, you know, the, 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 the promise uh, to, to uh, introduce universal health insurance, for instance, in the UK was partly the government making a promise to, to, to workers in the UK, organized workers in the UK for the sacrifices made during the war. So uh, whereas what really strikes me in the current period is that to a certain extent, we've moved backwards over the last 20 or 30 years. So we're not, we're, we're not even in a situation of moving forwards, but we're in a situation where certain 
certain advances towards universalization was made up to the 70s and 80s. But then because of neoliberalism, a lot of that has eroded and backtracked. So how, how do you create the political conditions today, especially with rising right-wing movements and so on, uh, to create those types of changes? Yeah, well, I wouldn't fully agree that we don't have the same situation in many countries in the in the global south, right? I think many countries in the global south are conflict-ridden. The, the many have been in war, perpetual war, perpetual civil war for, for many, many years. And in, in a sense, it's, you know, they, they, many countries, many of the so-called fragile states do, do have those, those conditions. Um, and we still see many areas of the world conflicts. I mean, right. Look at, look at the Middle East, you know, as a, in, in, in North Africa, you know, the conflicts that we, the, that we have there in many countries in Africa. And if you look at even a country like uh, India, across India, there's many, many, armed conflicts ongoing at any one time. So I think, you know, the the demand, you know, the the the, the conditions even that existed of war, I think potentially um on there, although I don't get that into into that much in, in the in the paper. And but I think it's the you know, I think what we did find though in in after the Second World War is, you know, the this broad consensus, democratic consensus, right? That this change was able to happen in a democratic con- consensus that uh, you know it wouldn't have happened if countries had continued without becoming gradually stronger um, democracies. And I think that the two things almost went hand in hand, in a sense, the, the, the catastrophe of the war, the need to then deliver a different type of social policy, which required much more redistribution to tackle high levels of inequality and, and uh, poverty. And the only way you could do that was through the delivery of universal public services, including social security. So I think it's there, the, you know, the condition for, for, for many countries are, are still there. What you require are politicians that perhaps grasp this opportunity, that capture the imagination, which at the moment, as you say, to a large extent is being captured by populists who are actually taking advantage of this, this disaffection that's being created, largely to large extent driven by the consequences of neoliberalism over the last 30 years, which have had damaging impacts in high-income countries, but have had even more damaging impacts in in uh, across the the global south. So where are these politicians that that understand this? And I think there's a, there's it comes back to I think for me a lack of understanding about how we build trust in government. That's what politicians don't understand. The type of policies that have been driven, often perhaps by good-hearted politicians, you know, programs all for for the poor. Exactly the type of programs that we had pre-Second World War, programs for the poor, means-tested programs. Now we find that that tends to be the policies that are driven by politicians. This tend to be driven by development partners. And programs for the the poor, particularly the um, social security programs, uh, many of the so-called conditional cash transfers or productive safety net programs, are exactly the type of programs that undermine trust. Because how is trust delivered? It's, it's through having, uh, you know, fair, um, you know, easily explained programs or, uh, that, that are delivered in a non-arbitrary fashion that are easily so that everybody can benefit from in an equal manner. That's how we know you, you build trust. Of course, that wasn't, that was an experience. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, people have been wondering this, but of course, in the European experience, if we go back to Spanish influenza, which is a comparable type of event. Uh, it didn't actually, you know, when you think of it, stimulate any paradigm shift like, like the type you're talking about. That, I mean, that paradigm shift basically took the Great Depression and then World War to, to, to especially the World War, Second World War, to, to, to really, um, to really um, 
take off. And it makes you wonder, actually, in that sense, if if pandemics are different in that sense, um, because they do allow, for instance, for unlike war with the threat of annihilation or things like that, when everyone has to band together and the elites have to basically sort of uh, pitch in or else, you know, uh, because they have nowhere to go. Um, pandemics, the, the, the elites can, in a certain sense, buy themselves out. They can, we hear about rich people buying Downton Abbey estates in England and going off to the countryside while letting <laughs> letting service workers uh, basically go into and, and can continue working or or they can afford themselves the best, best health services as we've seen with Trump um, um, while the rest of America just suffers through very poor health services. And so to a certain degree, the rich can retreat back into the comfort of a very stratified system where they offer themselves the best and let the rest of the population uh, suffer. And and I wonder if, I often wonder if COVID, especially if we see the types of political reactions that are happening right now, if COVID will be the same in that sense. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you made a lot of points in the, in the, in the question. I mean, first to go back to the Spanish influenza. Yeah. It definitely didn't have the same level of, of of change, and I think you know there's there's not there's what I'm not saying is that it's it's anything natural that this COVID nineteen pandemic will bring about a realization of the need for paradigm shift. And and what I'm seeing in my work working in a range of countries is that um, you know many of the the, the politici- politicians, many of the um, development agencies and the IFIs are still doing the same old same old. You know in terms of you know, saying, well, there is no fiscal space. Oh, we can't afford to do. We're going to have to cut service. It's it's almost the danger of doing what we did in the global recession in Europe and in the UK, you know, where we cut services, we cut public spending, we made things worse, we made the recession even worse. I think where we are different to 1918, 1919 with the Spanish influenza is that we have seen that countries can make a paradigm shift at a point at which they're they're incredibly fragile, that they can make decisions to invest uh, much more in universal public services and that we can bring about that fundamental change. And we do have documents like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we didn't have in 1918, which still stands as a fantastic model for how to build decent societies signed up to by by all of the world. So we have the models there. We know what to do now, which perhaps we didn't know what to do in, in 1918, 1990. Now, you know, in this, part of the problem has been, you know, with the with uh, the global discourse around, you know, um, um, you know, structuralism and the Washington consensus, which, which still continues to dominate in the field of social security. It's been very much an Anglo-Saxon driven agenda uh, globally. What you don't find is, you know, countries that are smaller, but much more progressive, the Nordic countries, you don't find that they have the same level of voice, despite the fact that they have the most successful economies and societies around the world that should be models for for, for many of us to, to be following. They haven't been speaking with the same level of voice. They haven't managed to get the influence. They've allowed the Anglo-Saxon countries, which have naturally been more disposed to neoliberal policies and cutting welfare states to dominate. And even I would suggest when we look at the Scandinavian examples, of course, we always turn to the Scandinavians as the models to look at. But what we see, and this has been pointed out to me, for instance, by, you know, we had Unrest once come to ISS, gave a presentation and was making very much the same type of arguments on universalism. And then a Filipino student, MA student, stood up and said, well, you know, you're giving these examples about Scandinavia, but we're actually seeing rising right-wing uh, anti-immigrant racist parties rising in Scandinavia now. Why is it? How come they're this ideal model on one hand, but on the other hand, they're also falling, succumbing to this 
racist anti-immigrant politics. And one of the arguments you hear in Scandinavia is that these sort of social projects, social contracts, if you wish to call them, worked because there was a strong social cohesion in the society because the society was relatively homogeneous. And then it breaks down as soon as you bring in some heterogeneity, which isn't an something I agree with, but it's just the type of discourse that reinforces an anti-immigrant position and so on. So the fact, the, the idea that as these systems become strained, uh, the politics can turn right as well as left, right? And that it's a very, very, it's a, it's a very unstable middle ground to be on because it's, it's, it's hard to necessarily, as we've seen over the last four years and even now, arguably, very hard to necessarily navigate those politics or necessarily have an influence on which way they turn, right? Um, and if I can just add to that as well with a Scandinavian example, uh, Gabriel Palma, for instance, has made this point in an um, excellent article he published in our journal Development and Change a, a year or two ago based on a lecture he gave when he was making the point that what we see in the Scandinavian countries is that actually pre-tax inequality is very, very high. It's as high as you know, the US or the Anglo-Saxons, they achieve the lower levels of the, the lower levels of inequality through a huge redistributive effort, which is what we're essentially talking about. Uh, but that, that difference between the pre-tax and post-tax has been increasing over time. And it's been creating greater and greater and greater st strain on the state to achieve those types of post-tax equality, and which is why we start to see the model fraying and, and, I mean, recognizing the fact that these contradictions and tensions within the model that make it more difficult to sustain over time. Uh, and, and this is in our best case scenario, right? Um, in contrast to, say, South Korea, where what you find is actually uh, there's the state is involved in a much smaller redistributive effort, but then they have much lower inequality uh, pre-tax. Basically, wage inequality is much lower. So they, the, the South Koreans, for instance, get to the same place as the Scandinavians, but with much less redistributive effort because wage inequality is, to start with, is much lower. Um, and so, I, I yeah, I'm just... Um, you know, without necessarily, I think there's a, a broader problem than just simply an Anglo-Saxon problem within the social democratic model as it exists in Europe in that sense, right? I'd, I'd fully agree, but I think the you know um, the model to a degree can freight the edges a lot. I think that it's still um, certainly in, in the Nordic countries still relatively robust. I mean, there has been a rise in mm -hmm. in right wing um, parties as you would expect. Anyway, but they're still not to the extent of, you know, um, following the UK model of, you know, committing um, semi-suicide by kicking yourselves out of the European Union and mm -hmm. allowing yourself, you know, they're not, they're not quite that crazy yet, yeah. you know. And I think uh, a country like Sweden has always had quite regressive taxation, you know, and as you say, has managed to bring about the redistribution through through this. And I think it's what I, what I do find interesting in the in the in the paper which I pointed to is, is uh, a paper written by Sweden's Ministry of Finance, in which it tries to make, which I think lots of people should read and I think I hope people will read after reading my paper in which they make the whole point about how do we you know what we've tried to do in Sweden is is build trust mm -hmm. between citizens through delivering universal public services that's the key point that they make in the in the in the paper and that's how we build the trust so it's fraying a little bit but seriously it's not fraying anywhere near as much as it is in the UK or the or the, or the USA at the at the moment my point more was that you know, you know, in, if if the 
the last 20 or 30 years, the Scandinavians had been able to have much more of a voice and influence in, you know, the international global discourse. Then perhaps we might have had a, a different model to, to the one that we've been having, which I think has been, um, you know, pushed by, you know, uh, or through a strong Anglo-Saxon influence, you know, um, uh, on the global discourse where, where neoliberalism was, was um, much, you know, found a, found a much happier home. Um, even amongst those parties that were nominally of the of the left, they they were happier to to sign up to it, you know. But I think you know to to we've got to get back to you know what can we do differently now? You know, I mean, mo- most countries in the global south are in a perpetual crisis, right? I mean, we 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 sort of um, don't understand the level of crisis they're in because often we we quote poverty rates that are really really low in many of these countries, you know. 10, 20% poverty rates, 30%, when in reality, virtually everybody in most of these countries is living on incredibly low incomes, you know, $5 purchase power parity terms, um, which, you know, would be almost impossible to live on in the United States. Many people are, are really just, you know, the, the classic examples of the, you know, of what Guy Standing described as the, as the precariat. You know, they're, 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 and they've been put in a much more difficult position now with, with, with COVID-19. They need something different. They need this, um, um, pushback. They need, they need people to stand up and start delivering what we know will be successful. So how, how do you then create? I mean, you talk about a social contract, um, but of course, social, it's a bit of an abstract idea because no one ever sort of signs a contract in society type thing, right? So um, it kind of comes from liberal theory in that sense. But the we could talk about social cohesion as well as, a, as another concept. But when you're dealing with highly stratified societies, um, how do you create that type of social cohesion around these types of ideas? You gave the example earlier of um, how governments, how elites and middle classes uh, boycotted the public systems and have boycotted universalism. And yet these elites and upper middle class people are the people who hold power in the society and are part of the government and the state itself. So it's not as if the state is separate from these people. And so, uh, how can we talk about a social contract in those types of contexts when the, the government itself is captured by elite interests and there's very, very weak popular mobilization? And if anything, popular mobilization is captured by increasingly uh, reactionary types of imaginations like we see in India with Modi and Erdogan and Turkey and so on, right? Yeah, no, and I think this is the where we're seeing. This is the, this is part of the problem. That I think I, I'm arguing is that the, the the kind of social policies and targeted social policies, the you know the unwillingness to invest in universal public services, the the you know um, you know being happy for the middle class to boycott all of these public services rather than taxing them at the right levels to give them the kind of public service that they would do is ultimately undermining democracy in many of these mm. the, these countries. So, you know, I think it's all linked in, it's all linked together. The, you know, the building of the social contract, the building of trust in government can then strengthen democratic institutions and can allow progressive politicians a means of actually um, you know, um, helping people to understand. I mean, this is part of a mass education process. This is what d- democracy is about, is a mass education process, right, that you you have to go through to get people to move away from thinking just of their narrow self-interest and of their group, but think more broadly 
of the interests of everybody in the in the state, which in successful democracies, that's what you've to to a degree um, kind of um, managed to to achieve. And this is what needs to 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 change. But it requires those changes because I think what is what you get from, um, you know, in these countries with high levels of inequality where the rich are living behind their walls with guns and barbed wire, et cetera, defending themselves, paying vast amounts of money to defend themselves. Is they're going to be living in better societies if, if they allow this change to happen and if they allow democracy to, to grow? But until we make this change, it won't happen. We'll continue with the problems. Things will probably get worse not better, you know, and in countries that really are fragile, providing, you know, more poverty targeted cash transfer programs in countries that are already divided will actually further increase that fragility and you won't get it. There needs to be a fundamental change there and donors need to, to realize that they need to, to bring about this change. But we need to give, you know, this is, this is the opportunity. But up to now, I think, we, you know, in some countries we do see politicians understanding this, which I think is where we've seen some of the universal programs being delivered, but in other still they 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 don't and they they're not able to to sell it but i think um you know i think it's uh, you know globally can we get people to understand that it's in all our interests to have this paradigm shift essentially i mean what we're looking at is the type of catch 22 right because it's like a, as as you describe it's a vicious circle that's constantly going so what's the strategic point where you have where i mean it, and again i i mean i it shouldn't the donors should only be, if anything, very cautiously supporting domestic political processes in this sense. Not The donors aren't <laughs> – it's a bit neocolonialist to think the donors will, will create these things. Uh, they, they, if anything, should just support progressive agendas uh, if and when they see them emerging uh, rather than undermining them. But, but within a national context, where is it that this vicious circle can be, be broken? It can be broken by – you know, the the point I make is being allowed to, because often these universal social security programs are attacked by uh, the IFIs or the yeah. donors. We've seen the case of the universal mm-hmm. child benefits in Mongolia. Um, the, you know, um, the case of Kenya is an interesting case. The last election, they put in place a universal pension um, for everybody over 70. That's a great basis to start building, building more universal programs after that. What happened after they put in place that? It was attacked by the World Bank. They put out a paper to say how bad the program was. There was a lot of inaccuracies in that paper. Rather than getting behind a very progressive program and saying, hey, well, let's do now. I'm working in Kenya at the moment on, you know, designing a universal child benefit, universal disability benefit to, to help continue to get behind those processes when donors shouldn't influence, but they do. And if I shouldn't influence, but they do, what we need to ask is that you don't influence or you get behind the positive um, programs and don't push your, what, what ultimately end up being your, your own interests. Yeah, and I think that last, I think that last point was important, Mun. I think it's important not to give the idea that, you know, we're suggesting that we donors have to change things, but that it's actually more about do no harm and get behind the good things rather than the bad things. I think that's an important point to finish on. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Pathways Perspectives. Let us know what you think. Share your comments with us on social media about how countries in the global south can begin building social contracts through social security. Watch the space and website for more of our work. You can find blogs, webinars, and future podcast episodes at developmentpathways.co.uk. Till next time. Mm-hmm.